7. We are in this incredible series titled 7. As I mentioned before, my name is Ephraim Pena and I'm the campus pastor here. Uh, it is my privilege and honor to share the, the, today's message with you. Um, so we are in this summer series that started uh, uh, the beginning of July titled 7. And uh, so this is our fourth week into it. If you missed one of our Sundays, uh, you can actually go to our podcast channels on YouTube, I mean, uh, on Spotify or iTunes, or you can catch us on our Facebook page on Facebook Live, and you can see the message for yourself. Do not miss uh, any of these messages. Uh, they're so important to who we are. But um, so here's what we've been talking about. Here's uh, what the series is, is all about. It's that we always seem to get caught on certain stumbling blocks in our lives that cause us to trip and fall and put distance, put some distance between the best life that God has for us now and how we're actually living it out. So there are things that we do that, we, that causes us to, to stumble, causes us to have some hiccups in our lives that kind of that puts distance between the best life that God has for us and how we're actually living. History has nicknamed these stumbling blocks or tendencies as the seven deadly sins. So we've been going through these seven deadly sins in hopes of finding out where do they come from, why do they trip us up, and what can we actually do about it? Because as, as, as Jesus followers or as Christians, we should be striving to live a sinless life. Key word here, trying, right? Because the truth of the matter is nobody's perfect. We're all kind of kind of stumbled on certain things in life. There are things that we get caught up even more so than others. But we should be trying our very best to live a life as free from sin as much as possible. Because after all, we are trying, as, as, as Christians, we are trying to be followers of Christ. So the more we grow, the more we mature in our relationship with Jesus, the less we should be, should be sinning. And that's kind of how it should work. And when we understand the characteristics of these sins, these vices, we, how, how we fall to them and, and how we can actually fight them back, the evidence will rise up to the surface and we will start to live a life that is closer to how Jesus wants us to live. So we've talked about pride, right? That was week two. We talked about pride. Last week we talked about envy. And so this morning's deadly sin that we're going to be talking about or addressing is titled wrath. Wrath. Now, I always like to start off with a question to get your your noggin thinking here and, and understanding and relating a little bit better. But ever had a time when you got overly upset in public, right? Overly upset in public about something that later you realized was, was actually foolish. It was childish in the grand scheme of things. For me, it happens when I watch the Lakers, it happens this, it just happened this weekend as I watched the Yankees lose to the Red Sox. Please escort them out the door, please. Thank you very much. 
Me too. So when I watch the Lakers or the Yankees, and they're not doing as, as, as good as I expect them to, I get a little perturbed. And I start ver- verbalizing. I start acting out. The family goes upstairs, right? And when you really think of it, at the moment, it's not foolish. At the moment, that's how I feel, right? But after the game is over, you'd be like, not the end of the world. We're still in first place. Boston is still trying to look up to us, right? You know? So in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's a little foolish to get that way. The jury stood out on the Lakers. We still got to see what happens this year, right? And the truth is, none of us are oblivious to this. We live in a society that is filled, absolutely filled with a bunch of angry elves. Yeah, it's true. They're everywhere both online and in person, at our jobs, even in our homes, we live around a bunch of angry elves. They have all of this this pent-up aggression inside of them. But let me give the disclosure because I know there's several of you that are new here this morning. Um, I'm not angry. You, You may think I'm angry. I'm just a passionate Puerto Rican. Right? It's in my blood. We speak loud. We use a lot of hand gestures. The reason the first roll is empty, they're the brave one, is because I spit, right? And we don't have the, the hoodies yet, you know. And so don't think I'm angry. That's just how I normally speak. I speak to my kids like this all the time, all right? All right, now going back to what I was saying. They have all of this pent-up aggression. Now, it's easy to see it. It's easy to laugh at it. It's easy to call it out. It's easy to get annoyed by everyone else who has anger issues. But the truth of the matter is that you have them as well. None of us are immune to this. But before we we look hard in the mirror and we start playing all WebMD and start self-diagnosing ourselves, right, we need to begin with a very important distinguish. A distinction, and that is, and you may be notice that that we are using the term wrath and not anger, and that's because anger is not a sin. Contrary to what you've been told, contrary to what you've heard, anger is not a sin, right? And so today we are not talking about anger; we're actually talking about wrath. This is what Apostle Paul was referring to in Ephesians 4.26 when he says, In your anger, NIV translation, in your anger do not sin. So when you get angry, do not sin. In other words, don't let one turn into the other. So Pastor Lee, what's the difference? What's the difference? You see, Anger is a reactive feeling that says something's wrong and needs to be set right. Something is wrong and needs to be set right. And so we ask questions like who or what was wronged? And whose responsibility is it to make it right? And who gets to decide right from wrong anyway? These distinctions are what separates anger from wrath. Now, if you don't have a sense of justice, 
If you don't have an ounce of the, uh, you don't have an inkling of justice, then you can't get angry. You're angry because you care. You get angry because you, you're, you're passionate about something. Something that's going on that is not right. And so it causes you to get angry. An apathetic or uncaring person cannot get angry. So the question is, what do you care about? Is it worth caring about? Is it worth fighting for? Is it your responsibility to remedy, remedy it? Is it within your control? And most importantly, what, uh, excuse me, would God agree with your answer to these questions? So I'm going to tip my hand a little bit early here and tell you this up front. All right, this is, this is where we, it starts, people start getting uncomfortable here. All right. God does not share all your personal vendettas. He does not. He absolutely does not, right? You may think he does, but he does not. If you want God to always get angry at what makes you angry, then what you're really worshiping, then you're not really worshiping God. You're a slave to your own ego. If you're so caught up and say, God, I am so angry at so-and-so, you need to be angry at them. Then really it's, it really turns things around and it's pointing back to your ego. Now, with that said, you should get angry. Certain things should upset you. Certain things are simply just unjust. Wrong, some wrongs you are called to make right. Sometimes when you feel that, that twinge of anger, what's been, offended, what's, what's been offended is your God-given sense of divine justice that prioritizes love over everything else. These moments are a call to action to partner with God to restore and reconcile people's relationship with him and each other. But it's so hard to keep your anger in check, right? It's so hard to keep your anger in check because most of us have a hard time knowing the difference between justice and self-justification. There's a difference between those two. But we have murkied the water. We cannot, we don't know the difference between the two. And this is where wrath comes in. So if you are taking notes, now is the time to start taking some notes. I'm going to start banging away at some things. And it's incredible. You can take pictures. You can write down on the notes. And usher, raise your hand if you need a note sheet. The usher will give that to you. But here we're going to go. What is wrath? Wrath is the excessive, misdirected, vengeful expression of your own bruised ego. Ouch. Think about it. I'll let that marinate in your spirit for a few seconds here. Wrath, the excessive, misdirected, vengeful expression of your own bruised ego. Wrath takes everything personally. 
It mutates an appropriate passion for justice into an inappropriate passion for self-promotion. Its attitude is, I want what I want. Nothing and no one better get in my way. Or I have to pay the consequences. The The agenda is always me. Self. Don't care about anybody else. It's all about me. Its aim is to eliminating anything in your way. Retaliate to, to any perceived threat to your security. And avenge any insult or injury that comes your way. That will cause damage to your fragile ego. It says, if you dishonor me, if you so try to disrespect me, if you try to damage my reputation, I'm going to put the smack down on you. Some of you are laughing because you know it's true. And it convinces you you're perfectly justified by doing so. It helps you invent all sorts of realizations or rationalizations as to why you deserve what you want, why others need to be punished for not giving you what you want or what is owed to you, right? And why you need to act this way to claim your rightful share. In other words, wrath has a lot to do with entitlement, We're upset because we think we deserve, we think we're old, we think that we have the right to. And when those things don't come up our way, in our favor, wrath comes out. But is that true? Or is it possible that your ego and your imagination have overinflated your sense of self in desperate and destructive ways? Here's how this plays out, right? Thomas Aquinas, a, a church father, breaks this down into three categories. Jot these down real quickly. Number one, getting angry too easily. I'm going to start calling you out right now. All right, just, I just want to get that out in the open so nobody gets offended. Nobody starts writing me emails, sending me anonymous text messages, how I offended you. This is, this is how it plays out. Number one, getting angry too easily, a.k.a. irritable. Every little thing sets you off. Everyone walks around you on eggshells. Then there's an understanding that it's your way or the highway. That's number one. Number two, getting angrier than you should, a.k.a. being explosive. All right? You blow up all the time. There is always a symptom that that's, there's something bigger below the surface prompting you to ask yourself, what's this really about? What grievances have I accumulated but not addressed? And number three, Staying angry for too long, a.k.a. resentful. You sulk. You refuse to forgive others or accept reconciliation. You fantasize about revenge. Passively, aggressively attack others. You refuse to cooperate, letting your anger out in relentless string of little tiny jabs. 
right? In other words, characteristics of an angry elf. You calling me an elf? Call me elf one more time. Just checking if you're awake. Just checking. See, wrath manifests itself in many ways. For some of us, it's more outward. Things like road rage. Hmm. Yelling. Cursing. A fist through a wall. A foot through a door. Flipping people off. Not you, right? Breaking things. Damaging property. And then on the other side of that is it's directed inward. Obsessive worrying. Nail biting. Depression. Cutting, self-mutilating, mutilating, drinking or eating yourself to death, letting people use your body, talking down to yourself, isolating yourself, suicide attempts. Unlike healthy anger, like that we talked about, because I said, remember, anger is not a sin. Wrath doesn't heal much of anything, but ends up destroying everything in its path, often including the good it was originally fighting for and the person doing the fighting. Because wrath isn't concerned with restoration or reconciliation, but with revenge and dominance, wrath fights for the wrong things and in the wrong ways. It's an attempt to control the uncontrollable in order to avoid vulnerability. Vulnerability. Although, ironically, the more we leverage wrath to exercise control, the more out of control we are and appear to others. So where does wrath come from? And why do we refuse to let it go? I think it's because it's way easier to, to be wrathful than, than to be helpless. Because nobody wants to be helpless. We live in a society that says, oh, I'm going to get you before you get me. I'm going to make sure I, get the first, I throw the first punch. Right? Our wrath is really nothing but a smokescreen. It's a defense mechanism. A way to keep from admitting the depth of our woundedness, of our brokenness, and our powerlessness. Nobody wants to admit to that. Nobody wants to admit that they're hurting. Nobody wants to admit that, that, that they, they feel powerless or that they're broken. So before you try to bring that out, before I got to reveal that in the open, I'm going to make sure you get a taste of my wrath. We don't like facing the fact that certain things are simply just out of our control. Wrath rains down with big, showy force as a cover-up. It's overcompensation for weakness, vulnerability, and insecurity. Wrath is often the result of unresolved hurt. Meaning, if you follow the breadcrumbs, right? If you follow the breadcrumbs of, of, of the steps or the, or, or the things that were, were, the actions that were taking, and you follow it backwards, you're likely to find unreconciled loss. Something that the person is powerless to get back, to heal, to fix or protect. And so this rage against anything that feels 
or taste or smells like comes out into the open. In other words, the recipient of the wrath isn't often the reason for the wrath. So those moments where we find ourselves pounding someone, hopefully not physically, but we find ourselves pounding someone with our wrath, that person is not really the person why you're so angry. And if we follow the steps backwards, we're going to, back to ourselves, we're going to see and expose the real reason. And because wrath isn't interested in the self-analyzation that's needed to address the root of the problem, it doesn't solve anything. Wrath doesn't solve anything. And like acid, like when you pour acid into a plastic jug, it destroys the container first. So all of this wrath that you have inside of you is causing damage to you. When you're thinking you're actually causing damage to someone else. And because wrath, again, I was talking with um, someone yesterday. And we talked, they were bringing about a moment that they felt angry. They felt bothered. They felt perturbed about something. And they began to share why. They were feeling this way. And they felt that that injustice was being done. And, and, and I totally, I got it. I understood it. But when we take that and begin to add to it some other things and go a little bit deeper, a little bit nastier, a little bit meaner, we start to expose some areas in our lives. So what are we supposed to do with all these people that are pushing our buttons? Show of hand, how many people have people in your lives that are pushing your buttons? Yeah. So what do we what are we supposed to do? How do we get the people who are making you angry stop making you angry? Stop pushing your buttons. Because I know you're sitting here thinking, the problem isn't my anger, Pastor E. It's other people's stupidity. <laughs> We're in church. Tell the truth. The book of Proverbs has the most passages about anger. And annoyingly enough, none of them say a word about the object of your anger. They all aimed at how you express anger. Basically, the summary of all the advice is this. Calm down and stop going cocoa for Cocoa Puffs. In other words, stop being an angry elf. Take a deep breath and calm down. Now, if you're someone who struggles with, 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 with wrath, you don't like hearing that. He can't calm down. Calm down, calm down. You calm down, Pastor. I'm angry. I got issues, right? But partially because it feels like it's, it, it's invalidating you. It, it, it's partially because you might want to calm down, but you just don't know how to calm down. 
James, the brother of Jesus, tells us how we need to be. And he says in James chapter 1, verse 19 to 20, he says, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. James is telling us that uh, to be this way because God is this way. In fact, his instruction is a rephrasing of how God is described multiple times throughout the Old Testament, which may come as a shock to you when you hear it. Here's the first time it appears in Exodus 34. Verses 6 to 7, it says, The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. And God has always wanted his people to reflect him, right? Which is why he says this in Exodus 21. But if there is further inquiry, the punishment, the punishment must match the inquiry. A life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. Now, this may not sound like it in our culture today, but this is, this was, this was God's way of safeguarding those ancient people back then against the evils of losing their anger. It's God saying, when someone hurts you, you're going to want to get back to them even worse. And things have a way of escalating quickly. If someone pokes out your eye, you're going to want to kill them. You're going to want to hurt them more than they hurt you. And if the survey went around, the truth of it is, most people think like this. You don't, don't just want to match it. You want them to you suffer more than you did. You want to one-up them. Why? Because you're angry. But don't do that. Keep it equitable. If they take your eye, the most you can do in return is take theirs. When people... And the surrounding ancient cultures heard this idea from this passage. It would seem obvious to them that God is merciful and compassionate. But then something happens. Jesus jumps on the scene here, right? In the New Testament, he flips the script and changes the parameters yet again. Matthew 5 
verse 21 and 22, Jesus says, You have heard that your ancestors were told you must not murder. You must, uh, if you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of fires, of the fires of hell. Wait, what? Why? Because they're all examples of allowing your anger to spin out of control. To allow your ego to call the shots. If you're full of hate and cursing and name calling, what actually are you channeling here? You're channeling wrath. The excessive, misdirected, vengeful expression of your own bruised ego. And it will destroy everything and everyone around you. Think of those moments where you have lashed out. Think of those moments where you acted the fool. Think of those moments where you were the angry elf. What good did it serve to those around you? What good did it serve to your spouse? What good did it serve to your kids? What good did it serve to your coworkers? or the mailman, or the FedEx guy, or whoever. Jesus says that you, if you give in to wrath, you're going to find yourself in hell. Our brains tend to think of being doomed, right, after death. But that's not what he was actually referring to. The word being used here is Gehenna, right? It's a burning trash heap on the outskirts of town. And he's saying, man, if, if you continue to act the fool... You're going to wind up on the outskirts of of the city in a pile of of, of trash. In Jesus' culture, it's where those who were ostracized by their community might congregate to waste away in misery. This was Jesus' way of saying, if you're angry, if you're angrily popping off at others, You're going to find yourself alone. You're going to find yourself miserable. You're going to find yourself isolated from your community, from the people that you do life with, from the people that you love, the people that that respect you. And you don't really need an ancient Bible verse to tell you that. Because how do you treat rage alcoholics? Not alcoholics, excuse me, rageaholics. How do you treat these people? Don't don't invite that guy. He gets really mad. I'm not bringing him over here for him to act a fool. Not in my party. Those fueled by anger always eventually find themselves isolated and alone. And what is complete loneliness? Well, that's, that's like hell. That's just nobody wants you around. Nobody wants to do life with you. Nobody wants to invite you to their home for dinner. Nobody wants to invite you to a party. No one wants to invite you to their, their work group. You get isolated, and that's not fun. So what is the solution? How can we move away from this vice and toward its counter-virtue? Jesus gives us this prescription in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. 
uh, uh, verse 5 and verse 9. He says, God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. In verse 9, God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. These are counterintuitive, starting with the promised result that those who cultivate these virtues will inherit the earth and be known as God's children. That can't be right. Those who assert control and dominance inherit the earth, right? God is always right. And those who are his children are the ones who insist they're always right, right? No, wrong. Interesting, these two ideas are related. And James already told us how to cultivate them. James 1 verse 19 says, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. It's humility, church. Humility. Humility starts with the assumption that you don't know everything. Humility is saying, you're right. I do not know all the answers. That you don't see every possible angle. That you don't have all of the answer, all of the information. That there's things that you're not aware of. That there are perspectives out there that you don't have privy to. Humility is an awareness that despite what your ego is telling you, you are not God. And because it maintains an awareness of this, humility listens and seeks to understand because it assumes there's something to learn. I believe all of us need a spoon full of humility. I think all of us need to come to the terms and agreement that says, man, I don't know everything. I do not have all the answers. There are some things out there that I need to learn and know. And the second thing that we need to do, peacemaking. Peacemaking prioritizes reconciliation over revenge, a connectivity over ego. Because of this, it pumps the brake. When we bring peace, when we bring humility, it pumps the brakes on emotional reactions. And it slows its response time until it's cooled down, gathered more and better information, and owned its part in the problem. Have you ever been in a discussion or argument with someone, it was getting heated, and that other person said, you know what, I need to walk away. I need to walk away because I need to separate myself from this problem. So let me wrap this up here. Some of you are saying, Pastor, that, that, that's, that's, that's kind of cool. I learned something new today. That's great. But you still haven't given me something practical, something I could take through these doors and begin to apply to my everyday life. At South Hills, we want the practicality. We want to be able to put into your hands tools that you can utilize to live a life that is better. Live a life that God has promised you. So I'm going to give you two sets of tips. 
All right? You can jot this down, take pictures of it, but it's super important because this is when we learn, we apply what we're learning to live better. So I'm going to give you two sets of tips. The first part of this is in the moment, right? In the moment. So in the moment, you need to close your mouth and calm your body. In the moment, close your mouth, calm your body. Refuse to say anything that you're going to regret, that you're not, that, that, that is not going to help you think clearly. It's like grandma used to say, if you can't say something nice, then don't say anything at all. Trade nice for helpful. If you've got nothing helpful to say, then don't say anything. Because anger is a bodily emotion. Do something that will soothe your psychology. Do something that will soothe or calm down your thinking. This could be listening to, to, to calming music, to taking a nap, to going for a walk, to hugging somebody. If you need somebody to hug, I'm always willing to hug. Number two, in the moment, create some distance. Create some distance. You may need to take a break. There's a psychological phenomenon called flooding where your fight, flight, or freeze mechanism has been triggered and you literally can't think logically. Scientists tell us that it takes roughly 22 minutes for the chemicals in your brain to subside and return you back to normal from any kind of, uh, 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 from any kind of, of, of uh, escalation, right? So any bit of distance that you can get from the, the situation that you're in and, and prevent it from escalating, you need to do so. Excuse yourself from the room, from the meeting, create some space. Trying to power through it doesn't always end well for you. Number three, number three in the moment, collect perspective. Collect perspective. Attempt to shift from your perspective to theirs. How do they perceive? How do they see the situation? Ask yourself, if someone were watching surveillance footage of this moment where you're in right now, rather than an edited version, than your edited version of it, would they agree with the way you see it? How you perceive it? Or if I were the person... Uh, if I were the person I'm angry at, how would I feel about what's happening now if it was being done to me? And number four, in the moment, cultivate a sense of humor. Cultivate a sense of humor. Refuse to take yourself seriously. Learn to laugh at yourself. When you can see the, the, the funniness of your personality, the preferences, the assumptions, the quirks, and the habits, it becomes a superpower. I absolutely love laughing. It's medicine to my soul. I laugh at myself. I laugh at my wife. I laugh at my kids. And if you hang around me, I laugh at you too. See, because it de-escalates the situations. 
and helps you find mutual solutions. So that's the first bit, in the moment, right? In the here and the now. Now for the long run, right? In the long run, number one, diagnose the source. What are you ultimately angry about and why? If you're having a hard time answering these questions, get a second opinion. Get someone to chime in, a seasoned mentor, a growth group, a therapist. They're all great options. Some of us, some of us need all three. Is there unresolved pain in your past that's poisoning your present? Those are things that we need to know. What might happen to your whole life if you decided you were going to admit and address the root of your aggression? Because the truth of the matter is your, 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 your anger issues is not surface. It's deeper. you got to dig in a little deeper and find the root why it's causing you so much hurt. So much pain, why are you lashing out at others? If there were more redeemed, Christ-centered, not ego-centered anger in the world, there'll be less poverty, there'll be less discrimination, less character assassination, less abuse, less divorce, less pain. There'll be fewer battered wives, neglected children, religious frauds, power games, liars and cheaters. So many Christians are either too nice or too mean about the wrong things. We ought to be channeling our righteous anger into redemptive action. And if it isn't righteous, and chances are most of yours isn't, then you need to let it go. This is the moment where it's in my notes, I need to start singing, let it go. But I won't. Number three, in the long run, ditch the replay. Oh, my gosh. We play it over and over and over in our heads and in our our hearts. We need to kick it to the curb. Decide that you're not going to run replays of the offending situation anymore. Telling yourself over and over in your mind what happened and how unjust it was and how unfair it was and how humiliating and cruel and evil it was isn't going to help you. It's only stroking your wrath. It's like, yeah, get it. Get angry. Get angry. You need to start telling yourself a different story, church. One that will help you Make peace and move you forward. Coming from someone who does not like people honking at me. You want to get back at your pastor? Find me on the road and come behind me and honk. I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. I say that not for you to judge me, to pray for me. Because that's, that's something I, I, I deal with. The wrath. I'm not the only one in this room that has it. Not the only one dealing with it. And so I just gave you some practical things for you to take home and begin to see how you can put it in play in your life, 
how you can make the changes so you don't have to stumble on this sin anymore so that you can actually walk over it and live the life. Sometimes I, I have to ask myself, or I used to ask myself, does God purpose for you to live in a state of angerness? Does God want you walking around always angry, mean mugging people, walking like you sucked a lemon this morning? If you never sucked the lemon, go home and suck one and see what happens to your face. I don't, I don't think that's what God intended us to. I don't believe that's how he intended us to live our lives. I believe he intended us to live our life in love and in peace and smile. Yeah, are there things that are going to get you angry? Yes. But they should be things that, that line up with an injustice that prompts you to do something for the benefit of someone else. Church, we're all growing. Some of us have pride issues. Some of us have envy issues. Some of us have wrath issues. Some of us have all three. We haven't hit the other four. Ooh, it's going to be a long August. But guess what? You're in the right place the right place so that we can learn what they are, how we stumble, the characteristics of it, and what we can do to fight it off and live the life, the best life that God has for us. Amen.